Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the wonderful, amazing truths of the gospel that we heard this morning. And just pray that, uh, that you would work in our hearts, Lord, that, that as a result of those truths, we would love you more. That we would see the, the shortness and futility of the things of the world. And Lord, our lives would be lived uh, to glorify you. And our hopes would be in what is to come. And what, what uh, your son has accomplished for us, Lord, and for your glory. And so, Lord, uh, we pray now for this time uh, as we start a new series. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you would guide us, that you would give us teachable hearts, that you would uh, just help us to learn and grow from your word, and that it could be an encouragement to us uh, as we go through these different topics so that we could uh, be able to help others who are struggling with certain things and also uh, be helped ourselves if we're dealing with them. And so, Lord, be over this time. We thank you, and we pray that you're glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, the, the point of the introduction here is to just kind of uh, motivate why we're talking about the heart, talk about what the heart is, and, uh, and kind of as opposed to the way the world would deal with things, you know, why, why are we dealing with them biblically, how are we going to deal with them? So what I actually want to start with is <clears throat> just the term psychology, because we're going to talk a little bit about psychology and what psychology says, and why we don't go with that, and why we want to go to the Bible to deal with heart issues. So uh, let's just start with the word psychology. Psychology is from Greek, and it's from the word suke, which is soul, or sometimes it's, you might hear it, psyche, and then logos, which is word or law. So basically what psychology means is the study of the soul which is an interesting name because the secular psychology world denies the existence of a soul or a spirit at all. Uh, they also deny the existence of God and reject his word, the Bible, as sufficient and authoritative. Uh, as Dr. John Street writes, psychotherapeutic theories have aggressively encroached upon the jurisdiction of soul care, including rejection of the jurisdictional authority which scripture claims in the matters of the soul. And uh, so psychologists, I would argue, and Dr. Street's arguing that psychologists are claiming an area that the Bible should be our authority in. And they're called, they, they, the name even means soul care, but soul study, but they don't even believe in a soul. So they're going to call it something else. But it is ultimately coming down to the soul or the spirit or the heart in many of these instances. And the secular psychology world tries to take that out of uh, God's purview. Take it out of the out of under the word of God. Uh, some psychologists try to blend the two together. Maybe Christian psychologists might try to blend uh, God's word with psychology, and that can be dangerous. Um, oftentimes, Christian psychologists relegate God's word to basically a starting point, and then they go from there and say, "Well, we have to add on the secular teachings and theories." to supplement God's word, and the implication of that is God's word is not sufficient. Right? It's not enough. We need more. So that's what usually happens when people try to blend God's word with psychological theories. Uh, so one, one thing is that Christians sometimes will do uh, if they're going to try to blend them is they'll start with the notion that every person has three components. Okay, so it's called a trichotomy. So this belief is that the, the person is, consists of a body, a soul, and a spirit, and that the body and the soul, the soul and the spirit 
are distinct. Okay, now they're, they're, we're going to go through and see whether, whether this is, seems to be the most fitting belief. <clears throat> so this, is a, this could be a Christian might believe this. I'm not saying this idea is unchristian. But it's one of the things that, that psychologists will take as a starting point, And then they'll say this. Because we're three parts, the body's the physical. If you have a problem with your body, you go to the medical doctor. If you have a problem with your spirit, you go to the pastor, you go to God's word, you go to church, whatever. But you're going to to that for the spiritual. But then there's this in-between, the soul. And they claim the soul is the purview of psychology. Okay, so that's what this, the danger of the trichotomous belief is to believe that. And to allow that to be uh, what, you're, what you're taking as how to treat different issues. So, you, so what it does is it says that the soul, or they, again, psychologists wouldn't call it the soul. They'll call it the mind. They'll call it the mind. We're going to see biblically that the soul, the spirit, the mind, the heart are talking about the same thing, essentially. But they'll call it the mind and say, number two, you need to go to a psychologist to deal with the mind. You, you can go to the, the God's word for spiritual things, which amounts to what? I guess like what you think is going to happen in the end, right? Afterlife ideas, things like that. Worship on Sunday. But what it amounts to is what are you really dealing with with God's word? So you're basically narrowing down God's word to be out a very small portion of your life and, it's, and saying it has no relevance to address uh, the, the issues of the mind or the soul. So you, you're compartmentalized. The mind is taken out of the purview of God's word. Uh, the Bible warns us of turning to the world's wisdom, traditions, and philosophies. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So what I want to do this morning is just kind of go through what, what is the makeup of a person? How do we address it? And we're going to argue that God's word is where we need to go. So let's start with uh, the, the makeup of a person. Okay, So what, what is a person made up of according to the Bible? What do we consist of? Are we a trichotomy? The three parts that are shown here, that's one possibility. Are we body and mind or soul? Maybe that would be the second one, mind slash soul and then spirit. Uh, so let's explain what the trichotomous view uh, would look like. MacArthur and Mayhew don't hold to it, but they define what it is. So this is their definition from their biblical doctrine book. They say the first element, again, this is defining what people believe if they hold to a trichotomy usually. The first element of man is the body, which is the material part of a person. The second part is the soul, which is the psychological element of man and the part that enables interaction with people in the natural world. The soul is the basis of reason, emotion, personality, and social interaction. The third part is the spirit, which is usually identified as the religious element that perceives and responds to spiritual matters and to God. Whereas the soul is said to interact with horizontal areas related to man's experience with people and nature, the spirit interacts with vertical matters such as man's experience with God. The presence of spirit allegedly distinguishes humans from animals. So that's a common kind of view. <coughs> okay. In his systematic theology book, Wayne Grudem writes this of the trichotomy view. According to many trichotomists, man's soul includes his intellect, emotions, and will. 
They maintain that all people have such a soul and that the different elements of the soul can either serve God or be yielded to in sin. They argue that, the, that man's spirit is a higher faculty in man that comes alive when a person becomes a Christian. The spirit of a person then would be that part of him or her that most directly worships and prays to God. So what if when psychology tries to infiltrate the church, then they take that and say, well, the spirit only has to do with worshiping and praying to God. And that's on Sundays, and it's dealing with things between your relationship of you and God, but if it has anything to do with you and other people, you and the environment, then all of that is under the soul and not under the spirit. Louis Burkhoff explains the origin of the trichotomist view. He says the tripartite, or trichotomist, the three-part conception of man, originated in Greek philosophy which conceived of the relation of the body and the spirit of man to each other after the analogy of the mutual relation between the material universe and God. It was thought that just as the latter could enter into communion with each other, that's God and the universe, with each other only by means of a third substance or an intermediate being, so the former could enter into mutual vital relationship only by means of a third or intermediate element, namely the soul. So he's... he's, uh, pinpointing that this originated in uh, Greek philosophy, this idea of something sort of in between the physical and the spiritual. Now, again, I want to point out a trichotomist view, does, that, that's not necessarily wrong or heretical. There are many Christians that do have a trichotomist view. I'm just trying to express that it's the danger of that view. You have to be careful if you hold that view that what are you saying is the difference between a soul and a spirit? And are you opening yourself up to buying what the psychology world is going to tell you, which is that the Bible is not going to help you with the soul. You need psychology. Okay, so some of you may believe in a trichotomy. Or you may have been, maybe you don't even know why you believe it and you've just been taught to believe in that. And that, that, you know, that's, that's okay. There is, we're going to go through uh, why I would argue that a dichotomy is a better view. But I do want to be clear. I'm not saying that's necessarily an incorrect view. I don't think it's correct, but there's arguments both ways that we're going to go through. But the danger is if you're going to have that view and allow the secular world to take that second part and say that that doesn't fall under God's word, because that's what's going on right now. All right, so let's go through what's the other view? What's the alternative to a trichotomy? Well, the most common other view would be a dichotomy, which is two, which would be that we are a body and a soul or spirit, that they're basically the same thing. Okay, that they either are the same thing, or they're used to emphasize different aspects of the same thing. Or if there is a difference, we hardly even could tell you what it is. So I would say for all intents and purposes, that as far as we understand it, this view would say they're the same thing. Soul and spirit, heart, mind, all of that. Uh, so why might we believe, why would I argue for dichotomy over trichotomy? So first, <clears throat> there seems to be, based on scripture, uh, an interchangeable use of the two terms. So that would be one of our arguments for why, there doesn't, what's, because we're trying to say, okay, well, if you say there's a difference between the soul and the spirit, what is it? And let's, so let's look, if we look at John 12, we'll just give you a series of evidence Basically, I'm going to present the arguments for a dichotomy and then give you the couple verses that are used to argue the other way and uh, go from there. So John 12, 27, Jesus speaking. 
He says, now, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Uh, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So he's saying here that his soul is troubled about what is to come. Okay, and then if you go to John 13, 21, it says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Okay, so, so they seem to be used for similar ideas. Uh, certainly, if you take those for what they say, the soul can be troubled and the spirit can be troubled. So what is the difference? And what would you call troubled as? Um, you know, what, is, that a, is that a mental faculty? What is it? But it, whatever it is, it's, it's spoken of in Jesus as his soul was troubled and his spirit was troubled as well. Now, I acknowledge they're not the same passage, so they're not necessarily exactly talking. So somebody could argue, well, they're talking about different things. Okay, but then what is the difference? So that's one case. They seem to be used, I would argue, interchangeably there. Is there really a distinction between soul and spirit in those two verses? Uh, next, if we look at the saints in heaven, <clears throat> the immaterial parts of the spirits, if you will, uh, Hebrews 12.23. Hebrews 12.23 speaks of people in heaven. It speaks of the spirits. I'm using the ESV here. So in the ESV, it speaks of the spirits at the end of verse 23 of the righteous made perfect. Okay, so, when, so of the dead, of the righteous dead, it speaks of their spirits being perfected. So before you've received a body, you know, is it your soul that's there or is it your spirit? To which I would say yes, because I say it's the same. But if they're different, okay, here it's talking about the spirits. Revelation 6, 9 talks about souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. So now we're talking about the immaterial parts of people as souls. So in, one, in Hebrews, it's spirits. In Revelation, it's referred to as souls. Uh, the same in Revelation 20. We won't turn there, but Revelation 24, 20 verse 4 also talks about the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. So it seems like when we're talking about saints who have died... When we're talking about the immaterial part, we're, talking, we're calling them either souls or spirits. It seems to be interchangeable. Uh, this seems to match as well how they're used when speaking of death. And we'll just look at a couple of these, or maybe I'll just read to you what it says. Uh, Genesis 35, 18 talks about as her soul was departing for someone who's dying, so the soul is spoken of in the context of dying, the soul separating from the body, the soul departing, Genesis 35, 18. Um, and then you go to uh, Isaiah 53, 12. He poured out his soul to death, speaking of Christ. So the soul, right, in death. Uh, Luke 12, 20, uh, this is that the, the rich guy who builds all these things and stores away his grains and says to himself, right, he's going to have this great time. Uh, and God says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. So we see the word soul, soul, soul is spoken of as when you die, you give up your soul. Your soul departs, your soul separates from your body. But we also see spirit used this way. Uh, Psalm 31.5, the column on the right is about spirit. Uh, Into my, your hand I commit my spirit instead of soul, for example. Uh, John 19.30, that talks about Jesus, he gave up his spirit. 
when he died. And then Acts 7.59, when Stephen was stoned, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So it seems like soul and spirit are being used in the same way when speaking of death. Uh, Wayne Grudem notes, I don't know if I have this one on there. Screen, nope, okay. So Wayne Grudem notes, in response to these things, a trichotomist might argue that they are talking about different things. Because maybe the trichotomist would say, well, when a person dies, his soul goes, and so does his spirit. And maybe they're talking about different things. Uh, But it should be noted, this is still Grudem, that scripture nowhere says that a person's soul and spirit departed, or went to heaven, or were yielded up to God. If soul and spirit are separate and distinct, we would expect that such language would be affirmed somewhere else, if only to reassure the reader that no essential part of the person is left behind. But we find no such language. The biblical authors do not seem to care whether they say that the soul departs or the spirit departs at death, for both seem to mean the same thing. So he's saying if they really are different, you don't see that anywhere that they're spoken of together. And then you would think that somebody would be concerned because they say, if I die and all I hear is that my soul's going to go to heaven, I'd say, what about my spirit? Or vice versa. So he's saying, well, somebody would be concerned about that probably. You know, part of them is not going to go. And yet, it's, so you would think it would be addressed somewhere. That you're, no, no, don't worry. Your soul and your spirit are going to go to heaven. Right? But it never says that. It's, they're never treated separately there. <clears throat> uh, furthermore, the idea, remember the idea was basically to separate things like thinking, emotions, and will and say that's the soul. Thinkings, emotions, and will is the soul, not the spirit. So if you have problems with thinking, emotions, and will, you know, that's one thing. The spirit's separate. That has to do with worship and relating to God. Um, so, are thinking, emotions, and will really spoken of as only the spirit, only the soul? No. We see the spirit also relates to emotions. So, emotions is not just the soul. Um, Proverbs 17.22 speaks of a crushed spirit. A crushed spirit, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Um, and then we mentioned Jesus being troubled. If you take that as an emotion or a thought, um, John 13 says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And then Acts seventeen sixteen talks about Paul in Athens where his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he's having an emotional reaction in spirit to what's going on, not in soul. So if emotions and and thoughts and will is really only the soul, well, it doesn't look like that because we see it here being spoken of related to the spirit. Okay, what about thoughts? Intellect. Is intellect only the soul? In Mark 2, 8, Jesus talks, he questions people, he says, that are questioning him and not believing. He says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Um. It says Jesus, oh sorry, that's not the part I was getting ahead to hearts. It's Mark 2, it says immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said, why do you question these things? So his spirit's perceiving. So what's perception? Perception, some kind of understanding, thinking, right? And so it doesn't seem like thinking is only in the soul. His spirit is perceiving uh, Romans 8.16 talks about the spirit bearing witness that we are children of God. Although some would argue that's the Holy Spirit. 
So that's not a definite. Um, 1 Corinthians 2.11, for, for who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person? So the spirit knows thoughts. So the spirit knows, the spirit thinks, as does the soul. Okay, now what about the other direction? Is the spirit the part of you that's related to worship of God, but not the soul? Not scripturally. Scripturally, we see the soul related to worship also. So the soul also relates to God in worship, especially you see in the Psalms. Most of the verses I've given you here have to do with the Psalms. Um, since they're all in the same book, we could just quickly flip through some of these. Psalm 25.1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. So in worship, we're lifting our soul up to the Lord, not just our spirit. It says our soul. Uh, Psalm 42.1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So it's not just our spirit that's relating to God. It's our soul as well. Uh, Psalm 62.1 says, For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Our soul waits for God. So you also see actions here. Uh, Psalm 103.1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. So my soul can bless the Lord and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And then Mary in Luke 1, 46 and 47 says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. So if someone's going to argue that it's the emotions and the thoughts and the will that's all with the soul and not with the spirit, that doesn't seem to hold up to scripture, nor the argument that it's only the spirit that relates to God in worship. They both seem to be related to all of the same things. So again, my argument is they don't seem to be different. They seem to be being used interchangeably in God's word. <clears throat> if we look for a moment at the last passage, Luke 1, 46 and 47, here's another argument that they are the same. Uh, there's a common literary device in Hebrew, especially, and sometimes in the Greek as well, uh, called parallelism, synonymous parallelism. Uh, we talked about this when we looked at how to study the Bible. Uh, there's many times, especially in the Proverbs, but it's a common technique that the writer will say something, and then right afterwards he will say the same thing in a slightly different way. So it's synonymous because it's expressing the same thought, and it's parallel because it matches up in, in parallel. So if you look at Luke 1, 46 and 47 you'll see that what Mary says is synonymous parallelism. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So the way this matches up, it's the same form. My soul, my spirit, and then magnifies is basically like rejoices, and then the Lord or God, my Savior. So they're using different words to refer to the same thing. So the idea of my soul magnifies the Lord is synonymous it doesn't mean they're identical, but they're expressing the same basic thought as saying my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So in parallelism, the soul and the spirit here are talking about the same thing, just like the Lord and God is talking about the same thing. And magnifying is talking about rejoicing. So it's, it's, they, they don't have to be identical. One, could be, one is saying it in a different way a little bit, but they're being used the same, which is in parallel, which is suggesting that it's the same thing. My spirit and my soul. That's not the only place that occurs. If you turn with me to Job 7, 
Job 7, verse 11. This is Job speaking. One of the things you always do want to check when you're in Job is who's speaking. Um, but, but regardless, it's showing Job's understanding. You know, you know, whoever's speaking, this is their understanding. And we see in Job 7.11 a parallel statement. Job 7.11, therefore I will not restrain my mouth. Now look at the next two lines. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. So there they are, parallel. I will speak, I will complain, anguish and bitterness, my spirit, my soul. Each of those three things is synonymous with the one above it. So in this construction, speaking and complaining are talking about the same thing. Anguish and bitterness is talking about the same thing. My spirit and my soul is talking about the same thing. And one more, Isaiah 26, 9 The first, uh, in my, in my uh, format here in the ESV, it's the first two lines. Isaiah 26, 9 says, My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. There's a little bit of extra fixings on this. But my soul yearns for you. My spirit earnestly seeks you. They're saying the same thing in parallel. My soul and my spirit yearning for the Lord versus seeking the Lord. It's the same thing in parallel statements. So my soul and my spirit are being used the same way. Okay, we also see uh, that Scripture speaks of people as body and soul, just as it speaks of people as body and spirit. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Oh, I had those up there. So body and soul is used, but then we also see body and spirit uh, to refer to uh, the totality of a person. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, you would deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Um, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 7, 33 and 34, it talks about an unmarried woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. Uh, 7.1 talks about cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Um, And then uh, James 2 talks about the body being apart from the spirit. Just as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. So he's just talking about there's the body and there's the spirit. But Matthew 10 talks about body and soul. So again, they appear to be being used the same way to talk about the same thing. All right, so, so that's my argument. Um, well, it's not my argument. I've borrowed from people. But that's the summary of the argument that, that I would agree with. In my mind's enough to convince me that I would lean definitely toward a dichotomous view that it, that it looks like the soul and the spirit in Scripture are the same. But we want to be uh, honest and say, well, okay, but what's the other side? Do they have any case at all? Like, why would anybody believe in a trichotomy? Um, I actually know of some... some uh, Faithful Christians who, who were trichotomists and have changed to be dichotomists uh, in, in more recent years. So, you know, it's, again, it's not, if you believe in a trichotomy, that, does, that's, that doesn't make you not a Christian. You just hold a different view. Just be careful with what you do with that uh, when you think about uh, the world and psychology. So here, there's, there's two main verses that someone with a trichotomy view would point to. So we'll just look at those. There's a few others, but these are probably the most difficult two.
And they do use the word soul and spirit separately. So 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So somebody looking at this verse might say, and at face value it does seem to say, we have a spirit, a soul, and a body. So does that mean we're three parts? Spirit, soul, and body. So that would be the argument of a trichotomist. But I do want to caution, this does not necessarily mean that Jesus, or sorry, Paul, that Paul is treating us as three parts. For example, if you consider Jesus' words in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, if you turn there for a minute, I don't think I have that one here. Yep. If you go to Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, I don't have the slide, so if you turn there with me. <clears throat> They actually have a term for this. They call it accumulation of terms. <laughs> uh, so Matthew twenty two thirty seven, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So does Jesus say there then that we are three parts? Heart, soul, and mind. Now, most of you probably, if you've thought about that, you probably haven't really thought of those as three separate things, have you? So, if we're looking at the First Thessalonian passage, why are we necessarily thinking of those as three separate things? Um, are they? So, are, so if, the, if Jesus is saying those are three separate things, we're heart, soul, and mind, well, wait, and then maybe the spirit's separate. So, are we four separate things? Heart, soul, mind, spirit? If you go to Mark 12.30... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Okay, is strength modifying those or is strength another part of us? Are we heart, soul, mind, strength, spirit? I mean, how many parts are we? So you see these cases where terms are being used and listed, not necessarily saying they're all different. Okay, and that's, off, that's called using multiple synonymous terms is, is a literary device whereby someone will do that where they're not saying they're necessarily different, but it's been used to say, well, we're talking about just like the entirety, everything. And so that's how I would understand that verse when, when Jesus says, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. I wouldn't understand that to be saying that those are different things necessarily, but it's just the completeness of all that you are. This is just the way to say everything that you are. And maybe those things are identical. Maybe those things are different. Maybe he's just listing like, you know, different, uh, different words of the same thing. Maybe there is differences, but it's not to say that they are all distinct. So that, I would argue that the same thing in 1 Thessalonians, we don't know. You could argue that they're different, but there's a case to be made that not necessarily because we see those other passages with other terms being used. Um, so I would, my opinion, I don't find 1 Thessalonians 5 enough to convince me that those are three separate things and that those are, um, that it's a trichotomy. Especially since when Jesus says heart, soul, and mind, I actually think those three things are the same thing. Just emphasizing a little different part of it. Uh, Okay, different aspect. Like sometimes we'll see that heart and mind are used interchangeably in the Bible most of the time. And so when you're emphasizing the mind, maybe you're emphasizing the thinking a little more than some other part, but they're talking about the same thing, the inner us. 
Uh, Wayne Grudem writes of this First Thessalonians passage, Paul is not saying that soul and spirit are distinct entities, but simply that whatever our immaterial part is called, he wants God to continue to sanctify us wholly, uh, that is completely, right, all of us, to the day of Christ. MacArthur and Mayhew write, the immaterial part of the person can be called soul, spirit, heart, or mind, and yet sometimes these designations can also refer to the whole person. So these are overlapping concepts, not distinguishable parts. Like we'll use that sometimes, we'll talk about, uh, we, we could be talking about souls, and we could be talking about like the, that part of someone, we could just be talking about the whole person, right? How many souls are in that town? Well, you could be thinking of that as the actual person's spirit soul, or you could just be talking about the life, the person. Sometimes those words are used that way to talk about the whole person as well. All right, there's one more passage. And this is probably the best one if you have a trichotomy view. The hardest one to address. Uh, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So in particular, it says the division of uh, of soul and of spirit. So that's the phrase. So does that mean that they're divided, that there is a division between the soul and the spirit? Again, not necessarily. You could argue that. Some people do. Uh, Donald Guthrie in the Tyndale Commentaries argues grammatically that, he, that this is actually should not be understood this way. I think he's a little bit in the minority here, but he argues grammatically against this and says that it doesn't, if you read in the Greek, it doesn't say necessarily from the spirit. It doesn't divide soul from spirit. That's the English translation here that's, that's been kind of given. When you think of the division of of soul, it doesn't say from spirit. It says the division of soul, and he's suggesting that you could read that the division of soul and the division of spirit, not the division of soul and spirit from each other. So he's not saying necessarily that there's a division between the two. He's talking about that the word of God can divide the soul, the word of God can divide the spirit, get into the innermost parts, right? Get to our, get to the the innermost thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So he argues grammatically that it doesn't necessarily mean from. Like we think that when we read it maybe, but it's not saying necessarily separating soul from spirit. So again, it could just be a list that the word of God can divide the soul, divide the spirit, divide the joints, divide the, divide the marrow. And really the whole point is that he can just, that his word is so precise that it can get right into the deepest parts of us. Um... He, he writes, uh, the penetration is into the soul as well as the spirit. Its action brings out the true nature of both. The word could be seen as penetrating the whole person. Okay, other commentators, though, do understand there to be a notion of from present here, but they still don't necessarily see this as teaching a trichotomy. Uh, I don't have that one. Okay. F.F. Bruce writes, the word, 
as it pierces, it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. Those should be understood as a rhetorical accumulation of terms to express the whole mental nature of man on all its sides. So that argument, we said this, that, that phrase when you accumulate the terms, like when Jesus says heart, mind, soul, right? So he's saying it's kind of like that where, where the author of Hebrews is just listing these, not saying they're necessarily distinct, but he's doing this accumulation of terms to express the totality of man. Uh, He says it would be precarious to draw any conclusions from these words about our author's psychology, nor is it necessary to understand them in the sense of a distinction between soul and spirit. So he's arguing that he doesn't feel like that's enough to conclude that that's what's being said here. Uh, Homer Kent Jr. writes, although this verse clearly makes a distinction between, so he thinks it's clear that there's a distinction, it hardly settles the long-debated issue of dichotomy versus trichotomy, whether the spirit is a completely separate entity from the soul or resides in the soul as part of it cannot be resolved by this verse. So he thinks it does show a difference, but he says you can't really conclude too much about it from that verse. Um, The ESV commentary States, Paul is not saying that soul and spirit are distinct entities, but simply that whatever our immaterial part is called, he wants God to continue to sanctify us wholly to the day of Christ. And then, no, I don't know. I think that's, that's probably good for that. Um, so what can we conclude? Uh, Grudem writes that there are few scholarly defenses of trichotomy today. So he's arguing it's not that common and not that well argued uh, these days. Dichotomy has been held more commonly through the history of the church, and it's far more common among evangelicals, uh, evangelical scholars today. And then he writes this. Um, i got to figure out where I have my... Yeah, there we go. Soul and spirit are both terms used of the immaterial side of people generally, and it is difficult to see any real distinction between the use of the terms. In conclusion, Scripture does not seem to support any distinction between soul when the word refers to the non-physical part of a person and the spirit. Dr. John Street agrees, writing that soul and spirit speak of the same intangible aspect of the inner man, the part of man that only God sees. Now, Street does see a slight difference in the context in which the terms are used, but he still sees them as referring to the same thing. So he writes this, that if you look up the words suke, psyche, soul, in the Greek through the Bible, you'll find that scripture uses the term soul in relation, when it uses the, soul, the, the term soul in relation to man, it refers to that aspect of the inner man in connection with his body. So it's usually talking about the soul and the body. Uh, in this together. When it uses the term spirit, it is that aspect of the inner man out of connection with his body. No distinction exists in scripture between the psychologically oriented and spiritually oriented inner man. So he's saying there's not really a distinction, but that sometimes you'll see in the way it's used that one is used in a different context more frequently than the other. So his conclusion is they mean the same thing, but they're used a little differently sometimes. Um, all right, so finally, so what do we conclude then about the nature of us, about the nature of man. Uh, so I, I would argue the dichotomous view is to be preferred, uh, but, but even that could be considered a little bit of an oversimplification because we don't necessarily separate so simply into two parts. Uh, so theologians prefer to think of a person as a dichotomy within a complex unity. 
And uh, Grudem's helpful here again. He writes, A frequent emphasis of Scripture is on the overall unity of man as created by God. When God made man, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Here, Adam is a unified person with body and soul living and acting together. This original harmonious and unified state of man will occur again when Christ returns and we're fully redeemed in our bodies as well as our souls to live with him forever. Moreover, we are to grow in holiness and love for God in every aspect of our lives, in our bodies as well as in our spirits or souls. And then he says, we are to cleanse ourselves. He's talking about the verse that he just cited. So he's talking about where we're to be uh, grow in holiness and love in those aspects. And then he's quoting 2 Corinthians 7. One. We're to cl- cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. But once we have emphasized the fact that God created us to have a unity between body and soul, and that every action we take in this life is an act of our whole person, involving to some extent both body and soul. So it, it's... We also so there, we would say there's two parts, but we're 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 one. You know, we're working together. Those two parts. Uh, so then he says, then we then we can go on to point out that Scripture quite clearly teaches that there is an immaterial part of man's nature. So that's his conclusion. And then uh, MacArthur and Mayhew conclude the material and the immaterial function together in one person, embracing both unity and diversity. This complex unity is conditional since death in a fallen world separates body and spirit. Yet this separation is temporary since all people are healed for resurrection, a reunion of body and spirit in eternal forms. The concept of complex unity parallels other realities. For example, there's one God, yet God is also a plurality. God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Also, Jesus is one person, yet he's both God and man. So the key conclusion then, is that, uh, from Dr. Street, the whole of the inner man comes under the dominion of the spiritual. That's really the conclusion I want to come to here. So whether you happen to believe in a trichotomy, maybe some of you do, if you believe in a three parts, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to agree that psychology is needed to address the soul. Okay, a Christian can believe in a trichotomous view of man and still acknowledge the authority and sufficiency and necessity of God's word for non-material issues. And so, in fact, we're going to argue that that's what you must do uh, if you want to obey God's word. So when we're talking about the inner man, whether you want to call it the soul or you want to call it the spirit, that we're talking, and whether you're looking at emotions, thoughts, will, whatever you're looking at there, that that all falls under the immaterial part of man which falls under God's word. So we can't separate and say, oh, some of this is mental and some of this is spiritual and you got to go to the psychologist for the mental and to God's word only for the spiritual. All of this should fall under the, uh, under the word of God. So another word that you may hear, and this is where we're headed from soul, spirit, is to heart. Uh, since we're calling this series Issues of the Heart, uh, so what are, when we're talking about the heart, we're not talking about the physical organ, the heart. We're talking about the heart as, uh, as, as an inner part of us. Yeah. Going back to the previous, on the, the trichotomy versus dichotomy view, did you get a chance to do any study on the Greek words that were used for soul and spirit, just to see if they were the same word or not? No, they're not the same word. So they're different words. Yeah. Yeah, it's suke or psyche for soul, and it's pneuma for spirit. 
Would no. that paper the trichotomy of you or no? No. I looked it up. Yeah. The definitions that it gave for them was spirit or ghost, soul, life, or mind. They were it was the same thing. It was the inner yeah. Yeah, and I mean the people that we're quoting here, you know, these are these are big wig theologians who obviously would have they've gone through the Greek themselves as well. So, uh, you know, when Grudem's saying there's not that many scholarly defenses, you know, when he's talking about scholarly, he's talking about people that are going through and doing the scholarship. They're going through the languages. They're going through every use in the scripture, and that's where Street comes to that conclusion about he felt like sometimes it's used a little differently in the context, but, you know, that depends on the biblical writers potentially as well. So. But nothing to say that we should conclude that they're different. Because, again, we see, them, we see both of them used in all those passages to talk about the, so what seems like it's the same thing, but just a different word. Yeah? Question. So is it pretty much the same thing, same, like, the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites, it's pretty much them, the same people. Same, different word, but it's the same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But again, there's context. Like I'm, like I'm going to argue in a minute that heart is the same thing. Mind is usually the same thing. And we saw that, I think, McCarthy and Mayhew listed those, and they said these are all talking about the same thing. So soul, spirit, heart, mind, whatever you want to call it, we're talking about the same thing there. Um, but we, we could be emphasizing one part a little more than the other. So when I'm talking about heart, what I'm not talking about is the physical organ called the heart. <laughs> and when I'm talking about the mind, I'm not talking about the physical thing that's the brain. So when we're saying heart and mind, we're talking about the inner part of us, not an organ, not a physical organ. Uh, so let's, uh, let's go through the heart. Uh, Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp, in their book, How People Change, write the following. Beneath the battle for behavior is another more fundamental battle, the battle for the thoughts and motives of the heart. The heart is the real or essential you. All of the ways in which the Bible refers to the inner person, so he's using these words again, the mind, the emotions, the spirit, the soul, the will, are summed up with this one term, heart. The heart is the steering wheel of every human being. Everything we do is shaped and controlled by what our hearts desire. And so we could say of the heart, if you look through the scriptural uh, teachings of the heart, we could say and look through and see that the heart is the control center of the person, what's sometimes called the seat or in other words, where, where, where these things come from, the thoughts, the attitudes, the motivations, and actions. Uh, or, so you can see that these are the things we were talking about with soul and spirit also, especially soul. Uh, so what can we say biblically of the heart? Just looking through some references, thoughts and intentions come from the heart. Again, that's what, what psychologists would say come from the, from the mind. They're going to use the word mental, right? Um, or a trichotomist might say the soul. But we're just saying that comes from the inner you. It comes from your heart. Thoughts and intentions come from the heart. We just saw Hebrews 4.12, right? Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Thoughts and intentions come from the heart. Uh, many other verses I've put up here that you could take a look at. Um, Genesis 6.5 talks about that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So thoughts and intentions of the heart are evil um, so the heart has thoughts and intentions. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Um, Jesus asks in Matthew 9.4, why do you think evil in your hearts? 
Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. So good things come out of, a, out of the good heart. Acts 5.4, uh, why did you contrive this deed in your heart? This is Ananias and Sapphira. Why did they, so they're in the heart, they contrived this evil deed. They came up with it in their heart. Their thoughts are in the heart. So thoughts and intentions come from the heart. Uh, emotions, we see emotions from the heart as well. And that's actually normally probably what people think of more, right? We think of heart sometimes as, oh, that's the emotions, but that's not all. Um, Deuteronomy 19.6 talks about anger. Um, this is about uh, blood avengers. When someone's been manslaughtered and there's a family member who might want to take vengeance, it says, Deuteronomy 19.6, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer. Well, in hot anger is literally hot of heart. So the anger is in the heart. The anger comes from the heart. Hot in heart, Deuteronomy 19.6. Um, 1 Samuel 1.8, Hannah, why do you weep? Why is your heart sad? So hearts can be sad. We see emotion in heart. And uh, Acts 7 talks about uh, enraged in their hearts, grinding teeth at Stephen. When they heard these things, they were enraged. Literally, it's infuriated in their hearts. So fury in the hearts. And then actions come from the heart. Uh, trusting in the Lord, Proverbs 3, 5. Uh, Isaiah 32, 6 talks about, uh, for the fool speaks folly and his heart is busy with iniquity. So the heart is, is sinning. And uh, in Mark, we looked at earlier, Jesus is talking about people that are questioning things in their hearts. So we see that the heart, all these things that we've talked about of the soul, it's true of the heart because the heart really is talking about the same thing as the soul. Uh, we also see that with mind, 1 Kings 3, 11 and 12 says this, And God said to him, Because you have asked this, uh, and this is for Solomon when he asks for uh, wisdom, right? Uh, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I will give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. Uh, the word is mind in the ESV, but in the Hebrew, it's the word heart. It's the same word that was heart in all those other verses that we just mentioned in the Old Testament. So it says discerning heart, but the ESV translates it mind. Why do they do that? Well, I think because in our culture, we tend to think of mind as thinking and heart as feeling. So when the word's discerning, the ESV translators, I guess, decided for our culture, we would think of that more as a thinking thing. So they put mind instead of heart. But it's the same exact word as heart. And uh, Job 8.10 as well says, Will they not teach you and tell you in other words out of their understanding? Uh, again, that's the English translation. It literally says words out of their heart, not words of understanding. Words out of their heart. But again, uh, the translators are thinking along the lines of mind and thoughts. So they've translated it mind. But biblically, heart and mind is talking about the same thing. Uh, this, this is also the case in the Greek. There are times where the Greek word for heart is used to mean uh, mind. It's translated as minds. Uh, we looked at Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 earlier. 
he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, that's cardia, with all your soul, suke, and with all your mind, which is a dianoia here. Uh, but, um, again, we shouldn't think of Jesus as making a precise division here. He's teaching about all of our inner being, um, loving the Lord. And sometimes cardia, the heart, word for heart in Greek, is translated as mind, in, like in Luke twenty one fourteen. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Uh, that's actually hearts. But the ESV is translated as minds. But it's the same word, cardia. It's not the dianoia. So we see cardia sometimes is used with the idea of mind or heart. So a couple of resources explained for us. Uh, Vine's Expository Dictionary explains that heart came to stand for a man's entire mental and moral activity, both the rational and the emotional element. And Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. The heart is the source or spring of motives, the seat of the passions, the center of the thought processes, the spring of conscience. Heart is associated with what is now meant by the cognitive, affective, and volitional elements of personal life. So cognitive thinking, affective, emotions, feelings, volition is will. Um, It is in the heart of man that moral and spiritual battles must be fought and won. And the interpreter's dictionary of the Bible, feeling, thinking, planning, and willing were all conceived to be functions of the entire personality so that the conception of the mind as the special seat or organ of reflective thinking as distinguished from the heart as the seat of emotions would have been for the Hebrews almost unintelligible. They don't make that distinction. That's our culture that thinks of the heart as emotions and the mind as thoughts. These terms, heart, mind, and so on, are used quite loosely by the New Testament writers so that the meaning of these words must be determined rather by context than by history or etymology. And we see them used interchangeably. Okay, so what do we conclude from this then? We're going to conclude then that um, we don't really have a distinction between heart and mind and that when we're talking about these things, soul, spirit, mind... Uh, we're, heart, we're talking about the deepest part of man, the deepest parts of ourselves, right? Uh, so whatever term we're going to use, so as, as we're calling this series Issues of the Heart, we're going to kind of mostly call it the heart. Uh, Lane and Tripp write, all of the ways in which the Bible refers to the inner person are summed up with the term heart. That's what we read earlier. So, that's, so to summarize, we, we each have a body and a soul or spirit, whatever you want to call it, a material and immaterial part. And so if you're looking at issues we're dealing with, then they are going to be material or immaterial. They're going to be physical or they're going to be of the heart. So if, you're, if our physical part of our body is damaged or sick, we do seek the help of a medical doctor. That's correct. Um, but since the terms heart or mind or brain can be used to refer to physical organs, you know, if you have something wrong with your physical heart, your physical brain, then again, you would go to a medical doctor to treat those things. But if we're talking about the heart as the inner person, that's where you go to God's word, not to the psychologists of the world. So heart or mind speaks of the inner person, not the brain, not the organ. And uh, that's where our, as we've talked about here, that's where our thoughts and our emotions and our will are coming from. They feed our actions as well. Of the heart, Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. 
J. Vernon McGee writes of this, the heart is the seat of the total personality. Out of the heart will come all of the great issues of our lives. Okay, and then Jesus says in Matthew 15, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. They come from the heart. They come from the inner person. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Okay, so therefore, the non-physical issues that we deal with in our lives, the issues of our thinking, of our emotions, of our will, that's what we're going to be looking at in this series, our actions that come out of that thinking and those desires, these start in the heart. When your child is rebelling against you, it isn't simply a behavioral problem. The behavior is the outpouring of an issue in the heart. You can try to band-aid the behavior, but the issue remains in the heart if you don't address it. When you become sinfully angry, it isn't just a behavior that needs to be modified. You must get to what's going on in the heart that led to that anger. It starts with the heart, which is desperately wicked. As Lane and Tripp note, our responses flow out of the thoughts and the motives of our heart, and the heart is the purview of God and his word to be treated by the Holy Spirit through the word of God and prayer, because only the Holy Spirit can change the heart. Right, And we looked at some of these passages this morning. Art was going through talking about the, the new covenant, the new birth, the new heart that, that we receive in the new covenant. Right, So Ezekiel 36, 26 talking about that he'll give us a new heart. And Jeremiah 31, 33 as well. Um, and then uh, that tells us that, well, how do we, well, first we have to have a new heart. The Lord gives the new heart. Well, that's salvation, right? You've got to be saved first. But then once we're saved then there's a matter of living it out. And Art was talking about this as well. And we live it out by, work, by obeying the word of God under the power of the Holy Spirit and letting him lead us and guide us. And we are able through that to actually uh, be obedient instead of being slaves to sin. And he works in us and grows us more and more like Christ. So he changes, he grows our hearts. And so when the issue is a heart issue, we have to go to the one who can actually change our hearts. And that's God and his word. A couple verses that are going to be helpful um, in dealing with any of these issues, hard issues, whatever they might be. Um, I want to mention 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Um, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, this is, a, this is a big verse when we're struggling with temptations. This is for believers, and it tells us, number one, uh, we're not alone. No temptation we're facing is not something that's common to man. There's nothing new under the sun. It's not like you have a situation that's unique. Oh, no, nobody else could possibly understand it. It's so bad, everything's so much worse. Well, no, no temptation are you facing that has, others have not faced. And then God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so this is a promise, basically, that you don't have to sin. Right? Um, So you are going to sin. We do sin. But when you're facing a temptation, you have a choice. You do not have to sin. It says he gives you an escape. Not that he necessarily takes away the temptation. It says here what the escape is. The escape is that you may be able to endure it. The implication would be endure it without sinning. 
So anytime you're facing a temptation, God has given you, we talked about this two weeks ago, right? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. So you're not lacking anything. There's no reason you have to sin, right? But we, you know, we, we do fall into it. But this is telling you that's a choice. You have everything you need. So there's a responsibility here, but there's also an encouragement because we're like, he says, he, he gives us a way of escape. There's a way to endure it. He's given us everything we need. We don't have to fall into the sin. Um, and yet we still do often. Uh, but, but we're also responsible because we can't say, I couldn't help it. Right? There's no room in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 for I couldn't help it. You don't understand. I, I wasn't able not to. There's no, no room for that. There's no room for, uh, it, was, it was the environment that made me do it. But you don't understand, it's that woman you gave me that made me do it, or it was my upbringing, or whatever, it's the circumstances in my life. No, if we're believers, we don't have to sin. God provides a way to endure, to escape. Romans six seventeen to 18, Art mentioned this today, I think he read it, uh, that we're sl- no longer slaves of sin, we're slaves of righteousness. So again, we have no room in, for, for, for a believer to say, I couldn't help it. You don't understand. I couldn't help it. I'm addicted to that sin. I couldn't help it. Well, that sounds like slavery to sin. Are you a slave of sin or are you not? Now, there might be issues where you fell, but if you, if you actually believe you could not help it, then you're actually using language that's saying you're still a slave to sin. Um, and we're not. We're slaves of righteousness. So we, we can't say we're helpless before sin. And that we couldn't help it. Again, we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. There's nothing missing. Now, we might not be putting those things on like we need to. We might have bad habits that we need to put off. We might not be in the word like we need to be. You know, we're not doing what we should be doing, maybe. And that's why we're having the problem. It's not because we don't have the resources that we need. So the third verse there is 2 Peter 1.3, which we looked at last week. <clears throat> His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So therefore, uh, the encouragement, then we know that we can live spirit-filled lives, which produce fruit, right? And Galatians talks about uh, the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5, what, you know, what, what the spirit produces. And uh, Galatians 2.20, that we no longer uh, live for ourselves, we live for Christ, who gave himself up for us. Lane and Tripwright. Because Jesus lives in us, we can do what is right in desire, thought, word, and action, no matter what specific blessings or sufferings we face. So instead of being anxious, we can have peace. Instead of being selfish and loving ourselves, we can self-sacrificially love others. Instead of following our sinful desires, we can have self-control. The solution to the problems of the inner man, the heart, lie in God's word applied by the Holy Spirit, not in human philosophies like secular psychology. Um, so we have to address these issues with the only the, with the we have to address these issues with the only one who can change our hearts. We have to repent and turn to Him for help for the needed inner change. And for this, we believe that the Word of God is sufficient, authoritative and necessary. We don't need to add worldly wisdom through psychology and its many contradicting theories. We must first receive new hearts by repenting and believing in Christ and trusting in him for eternal life. Then we must go to his word to address heart issues related to our sanctification. So briefly in the last part, I want to look a little bit about what psychologists would call mental illness. 
mental disorder, mental illness. Because ultimately, this is what we're really talking about. When we're saying that the secular world says that there's this whole area of your life, these whole issues that you have, that God's word is not sufficient for, that you need to go to this person with their secular theories to address. They're telling you there's this whole category called mental illness, which would be under that idea of separating soul stuff from spirit. They'd say, well, if it's worship, if it's relating to God, you go ahead, you've got your church on Sunday, you've got your Bible if you want, keep it to yourself. But that has nothing to do with physical issues or mental issues. So there's a category that psychologists have called mental illness. And uh, we want to look at that briefly. Mental illness. Mental illness, mental disorders. That's usually how these things that are heart issues are going to be viewed by secular psychologists because they're not going to talk about the soul. They're not going to talk about sin. So they term it mental issues, mental disorders. Maybe addictions. It depends what it is. All right, so let's start. We've got some quotes here. So what about mental illness? Drs. John MacArthur and Wayne Mack write, The concept of mental illness is a theory based upon a medical model of illness. In the medical model, an organic illness is the cause of various symptoms in the body. The body is sick because something from outside without has affected it. Thus, a person has the flu because of a flu virus. It is not that person's fault that he or she has the flu. That person cannot be held responsible for the inability to work since the illness is the result of something that affected the body. Okay, so far so good. That's true. Uh, But here's the problem. The same logic is used in dealing with behavior that is difficult to explain. When a person has bizarre behavior and no organic cause for the behavior is found by laboratory studies, there's no physical reason this is happening. Non-believers have theorized that the person is mentally sick. Just as the body gets sick, they conclude that the mind gets sick. Since the mind is sick, the person cannot control the behavior and thus is not responsible for any actions. So that's what it becomes. I'm acting in a sinful way in my heart, my thoughts, my motives, my will, emotions. But instead of taking responsibility and going to God's word to deal with it, I'm going to term it a mental illness and say it's not my fault. It's because of this mental illness. So you can't really hold me responsible. It's not my fault. That's where, where it goes with mental illness. Now, we have brains, which are part of our physical bodies. The actual brain here, right? That's organic. And our brains do affect our minds. Our brains, the physical brain, does affect our emotions. It does affect our actions. It does affect things with us. So we do want to be clear. A brain injury or a tumor can definitely affect our ability to think. But if that's what you have, that's not mental illness. That's a medical condition. Right? Some damage to your brain, concussion, something like that. Something's causing problems with your, with your thinking and how your mind's working. And that can affect your, your, how you're feeling, right? And so, but that's not a mental illness. That's a medical condition. And that can be found. You do a scan and you can show, here's what's going on. Uh, thyroids. We have, a, we have a thyroid organ in our body. A thy, the thyroid can affect our minds and make us prone to depression, for example. But that is not a mental illness of depression. There's a physical cause. There's a biological cause. There's an organic cause that can be proven and found 
looking at thyroids. So the key here is that we can find an organic cause. This is not the case with what psychologists will call mental illness. Mental illnesses are, are diagnosed based on symptoms, and they cannot prove an actual cause. There's a manual. I forgot I was going to bring it. They have a manual to make these diagnoses. It's called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's like this thick. I have like this big, gray, ugly paperback about this thick called the DSM-5. That's the latest version. And it's a list of these mental illnesses or mental disorders. And what it does is it diagnoses by symptoms. I'll give you an example. Um, Major depressive disorder. The DSM-5 lists nine criteria. And it says this. If five or more of the following symptoms have been present during the same two-week period and represent a change from previous functioning, at least one of the symptoms is either depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure. If you have those things, you have major depressive disorder. Uh, In addition, oh, sorry, if you have that plus this. In addition, the symptoms must cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. And the episode must not be attributable to the physiological effects or a substance or to another medical condition. So did you catch the last part? It can't be a physical thing, because that's what we said. If it's a physical, then it's a medical issue. So they're saying they can't attribute it to anything physiological, or to drugs, some kind of substance, either illegal drugs or maybe you're on some kind of medication and it's affecting you, right? Or any other medical condition. In other words, there's no medical basis for it. So there, you have this thing, you're feeling or acting a certain way, you have no medical basis for that. And, but you have these symptoms. And based on that, they're going to call this a mental illness. Now, so you look for these symptoms. But here, it's kind of interesting. If you look at it, it's not very scientific, or maybe I should say not very precise, five or more of the following, not of the nine symptoms. Okay, why not six? What if I have four? Isn't that kind of subjective? And it's only, so it's only major depression if it's five or more. Uh, and even the symptoms can be subjective. What is excessive or inappropriate guilt? That's one of the things listed. How do you measure excessive or inappropriate guilt? But that's one of the symptoms you look for. Second, the symptoms have to negatively affect normal functioning. And third, they must not be um, underlying drug or medical condition. So what is the cause? You've eliminated anything physiological. It's not your body. It's not drugs. It's not hormones. It's not diet. It's not lack of sleep. All the physiological has been ruled out. It's not a physical issue. Again, I want to acknowledge that physical absolutely affects how we think, how we feel. So that could be an issue. And if you are feeling depressed or anxious or any of these things we're going to talk about, one of the things to do is go get yourself checked out physically and make sure it's not a physical issue. But this is saying you've ruled out all the physical. It's not a physical issue. Okay? So then what is it? You notice then there's nothing to show what it is and prove it. If you have a physical ailment, they can do a scan and they can show you. Here's the tumor. They can measure the levels of some vitamin in your body and show here's the deficiency. But for the mental illness, there's no cause that they can show you because they've ruled all that out. 
It's not a physical thing. So, so they just say, well, it's a mental illness. How do they decide? It's based on symptoms. So they've just labeled symptoms. Well, you have this symptom and that symptom. You have five of these. Well, if you have four, you got nothing. But if you have five of these, now you have a problem. It's major depressive. And it's just on symptoms. So what's causing it? All they're talking about is symptoms. And all they can do is address symptoms and band-aid it. That's what's going to happen in the end. All they can do is band-aid symptoms. So in the end, what happens is there's no proof that there's anything going on. There's just inside your body to cause it. There's nothing they can show in your brain, but they term it as kind of a catch-all. If, they, if it's not physical, they don't know what to do with it. And they're not going to acknowledge that you have a soul or a heart or that they sin. So they, give, they make up a category and it's mental illness. If we don't know what to do with it and it's not medical, we're going to call it mental illness. There you go. It's mental illness. And then they're going to give you their theories on how to deal with it. In his book, The Gospel and Mental Illness, we're going to have to wrap up here soon, Dr. Heath Lambert explains that psychologists do not believe that people are spiritual beings who live all of their life under the authority of a God who made them and holds them accountable. Denying the divine and the spiritual requires them to see all problems as physical and organic in nature. Worry isn't sinful. It's an organic mental illness. But here's the crazy part. It's not organic because they can't find anything to show you that it's caused that way. But they treat it like that, even though it's not organic. So it's mental illness that requires medical intervention. Sorrow isn't spiritual. It's a medical problem that requires a pharmacological solution. And it's similar for other mental disorders, as they call them. Panic attacks, for example, are identified by four or more out of 13 criteria. At least one attack being followed by at least one month of fear and of another attack or maladaptive behavior and not being able to attribute it to something physiological going on. Again, what is the cause? Where is the scan to show it? What if you only have three of the criteria? Something not very scientific is posing as science. The very definition of mental illness is nebulous and changing. The definition was recently changed uh, from the DSMV DSM-4 to the DSM-5 without an explanation or any evidence for a need to change it. Dr. Eric Maisel, not a Christian, who wrote in Psychology Today this, the very idea that you can radically change the definition of something without anything in the real world changing and with no new increases in knowledge or understanding is remarkable. Remarkable until you realize that the thing being defined does not exist. It is, it is completely easy, effortless, really, to change the definition of something that doesn't exist to suit your current purposes. In fact, there is hardly any better proof of the non-existence of a non-existing thing than that you can define it one way today, another way tomorrow, and a third way on Sunday. Psychologists Herb Cutchins and Stuart Kirk explain, the category of mental illness itself is an invention, a creation. It may be a good and useful invention, or it may be a confusing one. DSM is a compendium of constructs, and like a large and popular mutual fund, DSM's holdings are constantly changing as the manager's estimates and beliefs about the value of those holdings change. For example, by the way, once upon a time, homosexuality, cross-dressing, those kinds of things were considered mental disorders. Once upon a time, those were in the DSM manual of mental disorders. Because the political scene, the culture has changed, they have been removed. So that's, that's the kind of things that, are, that just change as the beliefs change. 
Uh, so that's why he says, constantly changing as estimates and beliefs about the values change. Keith Lambert adds, for the most part, it is a category that gets used by secular psychologists to describe behaviors that are outside the range of normal. Psychology informs the construct of mental illness with a secular materialistic worldview. Mental illness is a label secular thinkers assign to spiritual problems discussed in the scriptures. So they've created a gray area between the physical and the spiritual, and they call it the mental illnesses. So if it's physical, you go to a medical doctor. If it's spiritual, you go to the pastor. But if it's mental, then you have to go to the psychologist or the psychiatrist. (coughs) And the practical implications is that this makes God's word relevant to only a very small part of your life. Just for worship on Sundays, thinking about the afterlife, prayer, personal prayer. But in terms of everything else, how you treat others, right? How how you're living, this teaches it doesn't come under God's word. This cleverly takes sinful behavior and reclassifies it. It allows psychology as a philosophy to infringe upon the Bible. What should rightfully be viewed as spiritual and treated biblically is instead treated as a disease or an illness with no actual evidence that there is an illness. Medication and behavior modification become the solution. Again, medication and behavior modification, those are band-aids. They're treating the symptoms. That's what happens. And Christians who buy into it give up the sufficiency and the authority of the word of God for the theories and philosophies of men. Keith Lambert writes, We live in an increasingly secular culture that in an effort to suppress the truth and unrighteousness tries to redefine spiritual problems in terms of physical pathology. Scores of problems such as worry, sorrow over sin, and even teenage rebellion get mutated into secular diagnoses like anxiety disorder, dysthymic disorder, and obstinate defiant disorder. Okay, but we need to go to God's word to deal with it. Uh, So we're running short on time. Um, but but the, the point then would be, again, I want to reiterate, there are, the, there are a lot of things. We don't want to just see that someone's dealing with, struggling with an issue. Like, we're, let's say we're talking about anxiety. Let's say you're struggling with anxiety. I'm not encouraging I don't want you all to go out there and say when your friend says, I'm struggling with anxiety, you're in sin. <laughs> Repent. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying, okay, we need to figure out what's going on. Is it physical or is it spiritual? It's not mental. Which is it? So, is it physical? Lack of sleep can definitely contribute to all kinds of things, including anxiety, right? There could be things going on there. You could have poor diet, no exercise. There's all kinds of things that could be going on physically that could cause it. So, we don't want to immediately say it's a sin issue. We're not saying that. But what we are saying is this mental category is something that's been made up in between the two. So, first, figure out if it's a physical issue. Address those things. And then if it's not, then we need to look at the word of God. And then maybe we do need to look in our hearts and say, is there a sin issue going on in my heart? Because the Bible says, do not be anxious about anything. And I'm struggling with anxiety. So is it because something else is doing it? Let's try to take care of that. But if it isn't, now I need to start looking and examining and going to God's word and seeing where to go from there. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. As we look through these different issues, you know, we do have to acknowledge there is a physical part that is going to affect you for sure. You need to check that out. But if you've done that and there's nothing causing it, I suppose there's a slim chance, you know, the doctors didn't find it. That's also possible. There could be something going on that they didn't find yet. Something new that's never, never been discovered. You know, there's things that could happen. So we don't want to be real quick to be 
you know, unloving to people and just pointing the fingers at them. But, um, but it's not going to be helpful to diagnose heart issues by, by just looking at behavior and then treating the behavior or putting, putting yourself on medication for it. Um, if it's a heart issue, you're actually band-aiding it is what you're doing. You're, you're, but you haven't dealt with the issue, right? So it's like, let's, I'll give you an example with parenting. If my child is rebelling against me constantly, I can go and I can lay the hammer down and I can be harsh and I can deal with it and make that child stop talking that way. But I haven't addressed the heart issue. So there's still the rebellion in the heart and it's going to come out some other way. But what I really need to do is go to the thing that's going on in the heart. And the same thing for myself. If I've got something going on and it's a heart issue, band-aiding is not ultimately going to take care of it. It's going to come out somewhere else unless I actually deal with the, with the heart. And that comes from God's word. So the last part on your paper is just kind of the guiding. Our guiding belief is, is our foundation is that God's word is sufficient. That's where we're headed, God's word. And so I, I gave you a couple passages there uh, you could look at. Again, the second Peter passage uh, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Okay, we have what we need. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We have the word of God. Uh, and then you got 2 Timothy 3.16 talking about the sufficiency of Scripture so that, so that we may be complete. What, you know, that's, that's pretty all-encompassing. So to say, oh, God's word's not enough. We need something else. We need, we need Sigmund Freud's theories or something. No, um, God's word is sufficient. And then uh, Psalm 19 as well uh, really uh, exalts God's word, uh, 7 through 11 there. So as we go on and we address these issues of the heart, we're going to be going to God's word, uh, knowing that it's sufficient, authoritative, perfect, inerrant, and infallible, and necessary. We need it to deal with heart issues because uh, only he can change our hearts. So that's where we're headed uh, 